Hello and welcome. This is Zoe Midler, the producer and host of Not a Rocking Chair Librarian podcast. This podcast features conversations and ruminations on K-12 librarianship and how librarians are navigating their roles as information professionals, literacy advocates, and proponents and guardians of intellectual freedom. This is episode 32, Representation is Under Attack. The past two episodes of Not a Rocking Chair Librarian have featured the voices of librarians, literacy advocates, and students and teachers discussing how they have been impacted by and responded to the current wave of book bans and educational gag orders sweeping across the country. Today, we'll hear from young adult authors Lori Halse-Anderson, V.S. Santoni, and Ashley Hope Perez. This current campaign of censorship has directly impacted all three authors, and I wanted to provide them with an opportunity to share their experiences, not only as banned authors, but also as staunch advocates for literacy, intellectual freedom, diversity, and inclusivity. Lori Hall Sanderson is the New York Times bestselling author who writes for all ages. Known for tackling tough subjects with humor and sensitivity, her work has sold more than eight million copies. Two of Anderson's books, Speak and Chains, were National Book Award finalists. Two other titles, Shout and The Impossible Knife of Memory, were longlisted for the National Book Award. Her books are taught in curriculum in schools across the United States. Lori was selected by the American Library Association for the Margaret A. Edwards Lifetime Achievement Award and has been honored for her battles for intellectual freedom by the National Coalition Against Censorship and the National Council, Council of Teachers of English. She's on the Leadership Council of RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, that provides support for survivors of sexual violence. Speak remains one of the most challenged books according to the American Library Association. Ashley Hope Perez is an assistant professor of world literature at The Ohio State University and the author of three novels, including Out of Darkness, number four on the American Library Association's list of top 10 most challenged books of 2021. Out of Darkness received a 2016 Michael L. Prince honor, the 2016 Tomas Rivera Book Award, the 2016 Americas Award. Out of Darkness was selected as the best book of the year by both Kirkus Reviews and School Library Journal, and Booklist named it one of the 50 best YA books of all time. According to PEN America, Out of Darkness has been banned in 16 school districts. V.S. Santos Santoni, born in Caguas, Puerto Rico, is a bilingual author based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Their first novel, I Am a Gay Wizard, won a Wadi's Book Prize in 2017 and was later published in print as one of Wattpad Book's launch titles. They followed their debut with a sequel in The City of the Nightmare King in 2020. I Am a Gay Wizard has been banned in Henrico County, Virginia. Follow my guests on social media and find links to other intellectual freedom advocates and organizations mentioned in this episode. Visit the Not a Rocking Chair Librarian show notes, a Wakelet collection. If you have a Wakelet account, just search for Not a Rocking Chair Librarian and the collection should pop right up. And you can always follow me on Twitter, at least for now, at Z Midler, at Z-M-I-D-L-E-R. And remember, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. 
Welcome, Lori Santos and Ashley, to Not a Rocking Chair Librarian Podcast. Thank you all for joining me today to provide your perspectives as young adult authors that have been caught up in this effort to eliminate diverse, inclusive, and responsive content from library collections. So just a bit of background. In October of 2021, Texas State House Representative Matt Krause issued a list of 850 books that, in his opinion, quote, might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex, unquote and requested that all Texas school districts, quote, confirm whether their school possesses any books on this list, unquote. I believe that the Krauss list and conservative media's ongoing drumbeat of disinformation about critical race theory were the sparks that lit the fuse of this current censorship campaign. Nine months have passed since the Krauss list was published. And what I'd like to know is if and how your reactions and opinions and thoughts about this campaign of censorship may have changed or evolved. What patterns, trends, and dots have you connected as we've watched this play out over the past nine months? I am particularly interested to hear your reflections on the following areas of concern to me. Impact, messaging, challenge policies, and publisher support. So Lori, I'm going to start with you on impact. On April 11th in the Courier Times, you said, quote, by attacking these books, by attacking the authors, by attacking the subject matter, what they are doing is removing the possibility for conversation. You are laying the groundwork for increasing bullying, disrespect, and attacks. So I want to understand what do you see as both maybe the short-term and long-term impacts of censorship and book banning and these educational gag orders, which I know is a really big question in itself and we could spend an hour on it, but what are you hearing from colleagues and peers and what are the impacts of the few curating for the many? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The impacts, uh, I think there's several layers of them. Uh, I think the most profound impact is on our readers. It's on the children of our nation. Um, Both those whose representation is under attack, which means uh, kids who uh, identify as LGBTQ, um, as well as kids who are not white um, and kids who are not Christian. Uh, It's it's that that, uh, identity that is somehow mythically centered uh, back in 1850s America that are the kids that are the only ones that, that these um, book haters want to see represented in literature. And so with these kids, A, are not, we've been working so hard as a community to try to get more books that represent all of our children, uh, but also the, the, the kids who fit this, this mythical standard of white, straight, heterosexual, cisgendered Christians, they're losing because mm-hmm. they're not getting to see people who are different than them, people who are they're going to be running into in, in their entire lives in the world. All of the children, all of the children are losing. Um, but in addition to that, uh, the kids who, uh, who don't fit that, that, that white Christian model, straight model, they're also increasingly at risk of violence. Mm-hmm. All kinds of different violence, um, which is um, completely unacceptable, um, and at any remove. And these politicians and the the people who are following them are are really 
they're, they're setting us up to become uh, Germany in the mm-hmm. 1930s. I, I feel like we've got one foot in there already. On top mm-hmm. of that, of course, are the, um, the educators who are being threatened, uh, threatened with the loss of work, threatened with also with violence and danger authors um, and larger it's the the long term is the are, are we going to be a pluralistic democracy or not mm-hmm. this is a, a defining moment for the united states of america well i couldn't agree more santos what do you think so this one's really important to me because i i mean i'm just gonna give some dour stats because you know it's kind of a dour discussion but um lgbt youth in, LGBT youth in general are three times more likely to make suicide attempts and transgender youths are six times more likely to attempt suicide. And I've always said that bullying starts at the top. And our publicly elected officials kind of set the tone for what we as a society consider to be acceptable treatment of LGBT people. Um, So when you see like, I was thinking more of like libs of TikTok, like specifically like that uh, Twitter that went around posting uh, anti-LGBT stuff. They really got this whole thing going about like groomers and stuff like that. Um, there's this kind of like right wing feedback loop where uh, the, the founder of Libs of TikTok was a huge fan of Rand, Ron DeSantis, who also then used the information that she was, you know, the, the propaganda she had on her t- on her uh, Twitter page to fuel his don't say gay bill. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a lot about that feedback loop of how they kind of just like feed into each other and uh, stuff like that. Um, and the tangible consequences, of course, will be that, you know. People who are most at risk for suicide often feel alienated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, growing up a gay youth, I grew up in Alabama. So I know all about that really dreadful existential loneliness because I experienced it growing up. And it's painful and it's hard to get through. And I'm glad that I had whatever structures I had to get me through it. But I know a lot of kids don't. And when they see this, you know, huge attack from politicians, from the media on who they are, you know, what are they going to think about themselves? They're going to think, they're not going to think much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just this concerted attack on them. But, you know, I'm not pessimistic. You know, I see a lot of books coming out that, you know, have representation for all kinds of people. I have TV shows. So I think the book bans are kind of this flailing attempt by this dying right wing to staunch an America that is becoming more diverse, whether they like it or not. Mm. Can I jump in on that? This is Ashley. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm counting like, on it. I mean, you know, and if you if you can't tell, I grew up in a Bible church by that. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, I'm like a step away from an amen. Amen. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, that I, I love that phrase, like bullying starts at the top, because I think I've talked about these, you know, the, the impact of these performances, because it really is performance. It's a performance genre. These um, community members, not even always parents, showing up in school board meetings, these politicians uh, taking dramatic positions on books they've never opened. It's a performance genre. But what I've said about these performances, and I think that speaks to the bullying starts at the top, is that they they impact our readers, our young people, our future leaders in multiple ways, some of which school leaders can't prevent and some of which they can they actually they may be able to set terms for participation in school board meetings for example but they can't prevent that that um sort of 
saturated and right-wing media person from showing up and saying things, what they can make choices about is how they respond. And I think that the heartbreaking thing for those students whose identities are under attack by right-wing groups is seeing the people in charge of their school and their education side with those folks, elevate their voices, give them the platforms, give them the say. And what that, in my, in my conversations with young people, what that amounts to is a public endorsement of hatred, a yep. public endorsement of this targeting of particular identities. And, you know, there was a, um, a suburb of Salt Lake City where a fifth grade, um, a fifth grader, a black girl in fifth grade committed suicide, killed herself rather, I should say, killed herself uh, after experiencing bullying and, and experiencing school personnel not doing anything about it. And, you know, that that is not directly related to representation in books or these book challenges, but that experience of endorsed hatred is really powerful and devastating. And I think that when that's combined with the erasure of certain identities and experiences from school libraries, it becomes even more um to, you know, more inciting of hopelessness, you know, and, and pain and a feeling that when I show up to my school, no one, no one in charge has my back. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible message to send to young people who are already experiencing marginalization in their communities. Um, and I think that young people who have marginalized identities, it, particularly in conservative communities, often find company in books and so you take away the books and you allow these immature adults to use attacks on books <laughs> as proxies for attacks on these young people themselves you're really creating a recipe for um you know hopelessness that does that does kind of <laughs> create a path to self-harm to suicide to other things that are are absolutely just not what we want for young people and not what school leaders at any level should be accepting. Stop there for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, for me, it's, it's almost like we've made, we made all these great strides um, from a librarian perspective of creating these, you know, diverse and inclusive and responsive collections that had content for everybody. There was representation. And now it's being withdrawn and it's being withdrawn with the consent of the folks that had our backs before. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what, I mean, to me, the message of erasure and um, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, you don't matter. We don't want to see you anymore is almost even more awful. Right. Because it was there and now we're, we're taking it away again. And it's, it's that questioning that I feel students must be going through like, well, were you wrong? Were we wrong? You know, that's kind of where my head is at right now with a lot of this. Mm. Um, but you have wonderfully segued me as I knew you would as authors <laughs> into the other um, area of concern for me, which is the messaging. 
Um, and I know Santos, you spoke a little bit about this, but I, I want to uh, give a little preface here. You know, during a recent webinar that I sat in on, um, banned books when books are threatened, where do we turn? Nicole Hannah Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, was on board for that panel, and she said, and I'm paraphrasing her, "We have to stop parroting the propaganda of critical mm -hmm. race theory and call it what it is: anti-history." And Ashley, you were on a recent webinar where you said. We need to stop the bullshit. Well, those are, <laughs> and I could have just stopped. That there sounds with like the, me. <laughs> yeah, and I could have just stopped there with the quote, but I want to finish it. Um, when those attacking diverse narratives talk about children, many of these times these individuals are distorting the presence of books in high schools and presenting them as materials made available to kindergartners and first graders. There's a reason this is happening, and that reason is not a concern about our kids. And I, I just think of that statement you just made about, you know, sort of this performative protesting that's happening and, you know, calling things what they are. And so I want to know, how do we avoid parroting the propaganda and how do we counter these distortions and the hyperbole and the outright lies at the core of these challenges? And so what, if anything, is missing, missing from our messaging or, gee, you know, it's for lack of a better word, our counterattacks? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, I want, this is Ash. <laughs> I want to say, I mean, my, my editor, Andrew Carr, has been incredibly eloquent on this issue. And one of the things that he says is, you know, it, it is, it's a kind of, we're, we're starting from a losing position when we are attempting to respond to people who are maligning our books yet have never read them, right? Because there's a, a way in which in order to respond to those attacks, we, there is some degree of recirculating the lies that has to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and it also seems to legitimate it in some way, like to suggest that, that these, that these uh, extreme distorted claims about our work are um, worthy of dialogue. Now that's, so I, I appreciate you know, I appreciate that perspective. And I think that there's some truth to it. And I've been, you know, I grew up in rural East Texas. I've been in dialogue with people whose positions um, didn't seem to merit dialogue my whole life. So, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, you know, I, 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 I honor that insight. And also, I think that there is ultimately this kind of bridge building that we're all, I mean, that's, I don't know any other way to be in the world except to be interested in building bridges. And yes, sometimes the bridge I want to build start build starts with me saying, I just want to be clear that I'm not building my bridge towards that bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I, I think that the way, the where we can go wrong is sometimes in trying to reassure these parents about the content of the books because the reality is they're not on board with young people seeing things that might make them question their the adults choices do you see mm -hmm. what i'm saying it's mm -hmm. not actually these people being worried about children quote unquote children or teenagers discomfort it's them being worried about their own discomfort Mm -hmm. Then being worried about what conversations their kids might start with them or what conversations they might choose to have with another trusted adult. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of think recognizing we're not going to convince them. I'm not going to convince anybody, for example, that 
the way I represent sexual abuse and out of darkness is something that that belongs in high school libraries because they're not going to agree with me. Mm-hmm. But what I think that we, the better starting point is we care about young people. We care, like, you know, that's the, what, that's the common ground. These, the parents who are involved have gotten all mixed up and they've convinced themselves that these, you know, these challenges, this incredible waste of their personal, you know, resources and energy is somehow good for kids. Like they've convinced themselves of that, but it, on some level, they believe they care about their kids or kids in their community. And so I feel like start saying, you know what, we, we care about kids, different kids need different things. And it's important to not forget what it means to serve all learners. And it, I think that when we kind of, kind of be emphatic about what our stand is for, you know, what is my stand for as an author? My stand is not anti-white or anti-Christian, although I'm sure when people read my next novel, they're going to My stand is for young readers having the chance to grapple with the important questions that are part of their either their own lives or as Lori said earlier, the lives of people that they'll encounter or that are a part of our history. I mean, part of our actual shared, you know, uh, inheritance living in this country. And young people have a right to know about the world that has come before them and the world that they're stepping into for high school students in a few short months or years. We're not talking about children. And I'm not saying, and also for the record, I think that children also deserve access to these truths and realities. But I'm, but when I talk about, you know, when I represent, you know, I provide a graphic representation of sexual abuse, that's not for a kindergartner, you know? Um, but I, so, I, I mean, I just, I think on some level, this notion of like, what are kids entitled to? What do we owe young people? And and I will, you know, have this conversation with anyone because few of those folks who are claiming that out of darkness or speak or I'm a gay wizard doesn't belong in a library are willing to say Bibles don't belong in libraries. Mm-hmm. And the Bible, which I've read, covered to cover multiple times for better or for worse, it <laughs> goes to all of these places. Yep. Incest you know, infanticide, ejaculation, masturbation, you know, like all the things that they're saying are are unfit, you know, murder, right? All all kinds of harm. And so there's just a real disingenuousness to the idea that somehow when these topics appear in young adult literature, particularly young adult literature that centers non-dominant youth or marginalized youth, that somehow that's when it's just not fit for readers. Mm-hmm. But when it's by Shakespeare or by, you know, in the Bible, somehow that's okay. So I, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> my, okay. my, my soapbox is like so high. It's hard to get down. Sometimes. <laughs> can, I, can I leap in here? Yeah, Lori, I was going to ask you as someone who I think I refer to later as a seasoned band author. <laughs> yeah, it's been going on for a long time. Um, right. 
but but the and, and it's funny because when when they started to ban speak which was shortly after it came out back in 1999 um it, it this there were still so the, the the cannon the old cannon the, the one we threw over the ship um uh that was still being taught and why can't my my kids should read you know ins insert insert boring historical novel that they had to read when they were young or you know and the truth of the matter is they didn't read those books they didn't you right. know because because they, they were nobody read those class. books mm -hmm. and so that's why they're comfortable with them just like Ashley, my dad was a preacher. You know this. We both know that there's a lot of people who don't actually read the Bible. They say they, you know, they don't, they don't. So, so what they're saying is, I am afraid of talking to my kids about things like sexuality, gender identity, and race. I don't know how to talk about. And to talk about those things means that I have to confront things within myself that mm -hmm. I've never confronted before. Right. And what we're seeing is the experience of a generation of parents, uh, white parents, particularly straight, Chris, you know, from, from that, 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 that identity group um, who didn't read these books when they were young because they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually, if, if it's hard to talk about this without becoming emotionally, I just want to, you know, I get my chainsaw and, and set it on fire and start, start attacking things. But if we can try to remove the emotion from it and think through it um, carefully, this is a logical outcome of children's publishing finally get starting, not there yet, but starting to do a better job in terms of representing all kinds of kids and all kinds of identities. Because mm -hmm. we, we have some parents and actually it's not a very large percentage, but they're super loud. And they have a, a very large, well-funded political organization that's using their fears. Um, for, you asked earlier about how do we combat this? We tell them that they're uh, being bad parents. Yes, that's <laughs> right. They are, they are guilty of parental Amen. malpractice and they are not preparing their children for the world. They are setting their kids up to fail and fail miserably. And then we'll, we'll go with the AC, ACLU to court and tell them, oh, you are also shitting on the Constitution. Well, Lori, <laughs> hey, Lori, I want to be a, I want to be devil's advocate for a minute here, because one of the things we hear a lot is, you know, from these parents um, is, you know, I don't want my child to learn about X, Y or Z at school. They should be learning about that at home. From okay, me. Well, so home. So homeschool them. <laughs> okay. Right. No, I, I, I hear you, but you know, when they stand up and say this at board meetings, it's mm -hmm. almost, it totally feeds into this idea, this new language mm -hmm. of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Well, right? and, and, but, and, and I think there's only one way to, 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 to really effectively counter that. And it's the hardest piece of this puzzle, as far as I'm concerned. Um, when you think about uh, the reaction to shock, you know, on the, on the individual level, we have the three F's, fight, flight, or freeze. But you also have that on a cultural level as well. Uh, and this is again, an echo of Germany where like things were, political leaders were making stuff happen. And the average person, right, who was not directly affected in that moment by those political decisions was at first like, mm. what's going on? And th there's confusion and, yes. and then it's easier to stay in the freeze mode or yeah. flight. Mm -hmm. It's harder to fight back. 
And what has to happen in order to, um, to have this, if this country is going to continue to exist, mm. is that the average citizen has to go up to, has to start showing up to school board meetings yeah. and has to say, well, I want my kid to continue to read these books, or I'm infuriated that you've removed these books, or why don't we have these books in our library? People who right. are not being affected, who are not being attacked, they're all being affected. People who are not being uh, attacked by these current level of bans have to be American. And that means they have to get off their couch and go to school board meetings. Mm -hmm. I agree. Absolutely. And actually we could, we could, and I say that like with such rage in my voice, I apologize. Um, I think, <laughs> but I think there's a way, I, the other thing that we're missing, we're missing laughter. Mm. Right. Because yes, you can, you can resist and you can be in, in fight mode and also let your joy still be living on the surface of oh. your heart um, and say, oh, you guys, I, yeah, I, I get this is hard for you. People I completely disagree with, um, <laughs> but you know, and then we're going to go to the school board meetings, but it's not going to be because, you know, we're like, you don't have to be rage filled. You can like say, okay, you know what? My best girlfriends, this is our new monthly thing. Instead of going to the silly painting class where we drink really bad wine and make even worse paintings, we're gonna to go to school board meetings. Then and we can drink the wine. And then after. we can drink a higher class <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, and, and this can be, yeah, look at, I have a great opportunity to give my children the example of what democracy looks mm -hmm. like in action because democracy cannot live without the actions of committed citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think, can, this is Ash, can I just, I, and, and Santos, you're going to get uh, in we, there. No, we got to make some room for Santos too. So yeah, go on Santos. Yeah, talk. yeah, I, yeah. I actually love hearing you all talk, so I'm just let you all talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to say, okay, so this will be about you, Santos, and then you can be like, well, hang on, Ash. But I feel like that's the place where I feel... You know, that idea, and I think Andrew in his most recent op-ed, Andrew Carr, um, uh, talked about like, hey, you know, yeah, buy the banned books, but we really need you to show up to school board meetings. Mm -hmm. I think that that is such an essential piece. And I think as far as the question of messaging, uh, what I am trying to do everywhere I say anything about these things is to give those well, like, you know, th those folks who like, they hear this stuff and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, whether my kid's queer or black or brown or, you know, Asian American or whatever, I want them to have access to this. And I want kids in my community to have access to this, but I have no idea how to talk to my neighbors about it, to give them the talking points like over mm -hmm. and over. And I think, Lori, your point about humor is so important because the, the, a sense of like playfulness yes. makes it a lot easier to call out our neighbors mm -hmm. or to say, Hey, you don't speak for me. Mm -hmm. um, so that notion of, you know, being able to say, <clears throat> show up to a school board meeting and say, you know, it's really interesting what passages people read from books, but I want to read a different passage mm -hmm. and reading something that's joyful or, you know, affirming in mm -hmm. one of these books that are being challenged and just, and, and like you said, making it something that ends with a margarita or a glass of wine for the folks who are involved, like this is our action together, but also it's part of our community yes. connecting. Um, folks need the talking points for that. And I just, as far as joy goes, I just wanted to say this about, because when I found out about like in um, Virginia, the same place where Out of Darkness was removed, 
Santos's book was removed shortly thereafter. And I just felt when I read about it and I read the, like the reviews kids were leaving of I'm a gay wizard and just like, this is a book kids need. And in part because it's joyful and vibrant. And it, I mean, and that is actually what, you know, more so even than books like mine that are about, you know, folks carving out the most narrow path to thrive, you know, to some mm-hmm. experience of thriving and devastating t- times of devastating oppression. Those books like Gender Queer that end on a note of affirmation that say, hey, we're here and we're alive and we're going to live are actually the ones that most terrify these folks. Um, but they're also the ones that young people, you know, urgently need. And I think I feel in some ways, you know, um, it's like the person called in to go to the school board meeting, but in terms of those authors whose books are being banned, but not at the level of like speak or out of darkness where folks are seeing it or mouse, you know, mouse gets banned in one place, but everyone's like really paying attention Mm -hmm. because it's a big deal. But, you know, it's important for us also to be talking about what are the impacts on you know, first time authors or on authors who are publishing with a small press or whatever, when this happens and to say, kids need these books and we're going to keep talking about it. Yes. And again, you've given me a great segue (laughs) (laughs) into this issue of publisher support. Um, And Santos, I am very curious to get your opinion on this because you are working with a smaller publisher and you have been banned in at least one county, uh, Henrico County, Virginia, maybe Mm -hmm. more now, I don't know. But speaking from your perspective, all your perspectives as authors that routinely interact with publishers and editors, how are they reacting to this situation? What role or level of support should publisher and editors be providing to censored authors and others that support intellectual freedom. I mean, are they doing enough? Are we, are, it just seems like that they have such a big hammer that they could use. And I'm just wondering, are they doing it? Are there things I'm not aware of? Are there things you wish they would be doing more or are, are you fine with what, you know, what's happening with them as far as support? I, can I ask for some clarification? Sure. Um, what, what do you think their big hammer is? Oh, just their size and their bank account. Um, you know, when I look at how highly organized and well-funded the, the, I, I, the Reich wing groups are um, in this battle, I yeah. just wonder if the publishers could be doing more. And I'm not talking about, you know, just the random houses and, right. you know, the people we think of. Um, I'm thinking about Amazon as well. Well, I mean, they, yeah. are, they, are, they are a publisher of content um, and a distributor. So that's what I'm thinking about. Like, is there more that could be done here? And, and I know, like I said, Santos, you're with a smaller publisher. So maybe there has been more support or less support. I don't know. So does that clarify for you, Lori? Yeah, it does. Um, I just want to add two quick things. Uh, mm-hmm. One is, is that even the big publishers, or especially the big publishers, um, are owned by other corporations. Sure. And I think that is, that might be where, you know, because all of us who know people in the, who operate in publishing editors or publicity people or whatever, um, you know, they're, they're obviously as, as dedicated to providing a variety of stories for all of America's children as Mm. we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you have levels of corporation above, for example, the, the, the publisher of that, 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 that one particular company that are, that have other controls. So, Yes, they're big, but and, and they already operate on a very thin bottom line. So I don't think there's the money there 
that people might imagine. Having said that, I feel that they've been a little, they've been slow off the mark, distressingly so. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm beginning to see uh, so, some welcome change. Uh, but, and you mentioned Amazon, I, and I have not had any conversations with people about this, but I wonder mm. Don't hold your breath. Right. (laughs) There was a an antitrust suit Mm -hmm. that Amazon brought against the other big publisher like Macmillan and Mm -hmm. and Penguin Random House um, a couple of years ago, and I I wonder if that might be might be um, might make the lawyers who work for these companies nervous about well publishers can't coordinate on anything because look at what happened. And it was Amazon who brought that suit. So, so honestly, I think that that ask, I, I wish and I hope and I you know encourage publishers to step up, but we can't hold our breaths. It's just not we're we're no, we can't wait for that to happen. Well, and I mean, I get that there are shareholders involved, and these are corporate entities, but they also have lobbying wings. Um, and yeah. I do, but I don't. I mean, and I don't put them on par with you know like the oil industry's no. lobbying wing. Okay. But I just, um, they don't okay, really so, have lobbying so let's, wing. so when you say they're slow off the mark, what do you wish they would have done? Um, first of all, I wish that every single editor in America, when this started would have just, you know, they could sent out a, uh, a simple email to everybody who they've, who they work with saying, Hey, I know about this. And, and, and for those authors of books who are being targeted, authors of color, authors who are not Christian, authors whose books represent LGBTQIA stories, authors whose books handle sexuality, you know, privately, you know, a, a, a message saying, I, you know, you've got to be feeling all kinds of things right now. Um, let, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because some, especially early books in people's career tend to come from a very personal experience mm-hmm. and space. Mm-hmm. We have now a young generation of authors um, who I think are younger than previous generations in Kidlet because the doors open now, um, and they frankly need mo- much more uh, emotional support from their publishers than they're getting. So mm-hmm. Santos, did you get that support? Um, so my publisher knows I'm a shit starter, and <laughs> they know that I wrote that book to prod the bear and you know to get some reactions. I put a lot of stuff in there to you know poke some bears, so they knew that I wanted that kind of reaction. So they were just kind of quiet about it. And when I wrote my editor about it, she she me, me and her laughed about it um, because it's the kind of reaction that I was kind of fishing for. Uh, but I want to say like in terms of like corporate support for authors, Ron DeSantos said this of Disney. He said, you're a corporation based in Burbank, California, and you're going to marshal your economic might to attack the parents of my state. You know, Ron DeSantis was playing on people's disdain for corporations to push that don't say gay bill. So I actually don't think that, I think that these things have to come from the grassroots. Mm-hmm. I think they have to come from authors and the book community and librarians and student activists. I don't think big corporations need a bankroll. These people, you know, are smart and they will fight for what's right on their own. They don't need these big corporations to bankroll them. And the right wing will always sit there and appropriate the message of anti-corporatism or whatever it is to sit there and make themselves look valid when they're just pulling nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what they can do, this is Ash, um, they can, I mean, you know, I think, and Penguin Random House's CEO dumped 
personal money in, and I think maybe pledge some Penguin Random House money to, to organizations like Pen America or the mm-hmm. NCAC. You know, mm-hmm. that they they can give money to the people who are doing the work, but I agree that they don't need to be the face of that work. Mm-hmm. The other things I've been seeing, you know, Learner and Penguin Random House and its subsidiaries doing is providing resources, creating kind of mm-hmm. like resource. Um, centers for librarians to be able to easily frame a response to challenges and articulate the value of these materials for for learners. But something Santos said, I feel like is essential in terms of, you know, how we um, achieve the things that Lori talked about earlier of like, um, here's our, our, our prime motive of challenge, which is you're being bad parents, um, is to say, do everything you can to elevate student voices. Because Mm -hmm. in a number of the places where Out of Darkness has been challenged or removed, student voices have made the difference. And Mm -hmm. it's very hard for a school board to sit there and pretend that, you know, books about um, sexual assault are traumatizing young people when the young people themselves are there saying, I needed this book to help me talk to the people I care about about what consent is, mm-hmm. you know, when they when they say this is what these books mean to us, school board leaders listen, and we saw that in Orange County. I think it was North Carolina, it might have been South Carolina, one of those Carolinas, um, <laughs> where you know school the school board um, not only voted to retain Out of Darkness, Gender Queer, and I forget what the third book was, um, but they they voted to like to protect them permanently to say we mm-hmm. we uh, you know we support the presence of these books and they were reading you know letters from young people mm-hmm. who were able to speak to what they mean to them so i think that you know adults parents allies and communities can perhaps you know by showing up and speaking up that's a great that's a great action but even more so by enabling young people's you know, sense of this is my, like the school board meeting as a space where I should be able to speak. No, I think that, I I mean, I I think that ties into exactly, you know, Santos's point, like maybe this does need to be more grassroots, you know, maybe this doesn't need that sort of corporate overlord um, involvement um, because it is more authentic and it's more heartfelt and it's, it's just more genuine. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we remove that sort of um, haze of, you know, corporate, I don't know, puppetry, you know, somebody's pulling mm-hmm. the strings here, which I totally believe is happening on the other side. Yes, <laughs> it 100% so, is happening so, on the other so side. We don't need to duplicate that strategy. There needs to be a different strategy. Um, Can so I, that lead, yeah, go ahead, Lori. Yeah, I, yeah, I just wanted to raise a, a point that, that um, I don't hear people talking about very much. Um, and that has to do with the teaching of social studies. Mm. Stay with me here. <laughs> it, it, I know, right? I, I no, you're to, connecting dots, which is exactly I, uh, what I want right. you to do. Okay. So um, if you think back to the beginning of the George Bush II administration, I believe it was him, um, that started the uh, race to the, some, some of these education policies where they, um, you know, you had award-winning schools and, and then there were test levels, the testing thing became bigger and if you didn't get your kids at a certain level on this test or this test, there was a threat of funding being cut, which is mm-hmm. just, wow, that's a whole other issue. But um, 
uh, what one, my experience as somebody who writes books also that have to do with history and having mm -hmm. gone to social studies teachers conferences is that in response to those early testing uh, procedures, that's when school districts began to phase out how many hours per year were spent on teaching things like civics or social studies or yeah. history. Mm -hmm. So we now have like, a, this has been going on for like 20 years also. So there's mm -hmm. less understanding and let's face it, very few of us remember what we were taught in fifth grade, but it's really helpful when our kids go to fifth grade and then we finally get to learn, oh, that's what an amendment <laughs> is, right? So, yeah. so there's also education of adults that goes on. Um, and, and so that's not happening either. And so how do we turn this into an opportunity? We have an opportunity now as a nation to, you know, the, the, the phrase that just popped into my head was teach and reach or reach and teach. Um, and get people to aim, understand their civic responsibility and engage in civic power. Uh, and, 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 and this, this happens by going to school board meetings, but it also happens uh, at the administrative level when school districts uh, create professional development for the educators in the building that mm -hmm. discuss these things. And that, 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 you know, because the teachers, it's like it wasn't hard enough already being an educator after two years of COVID, right. gracious. <laughs> um, so, so create professional development programs that will do exactly the kinds of things that, that we've been talking about here. And, and, or why not offer those professional development courses to the parents? Well, let's do the teachers first because <laughs> they're on the firing line today. Yes, but absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Parental book clubs, PTO could have a whole other yes. function here. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and it could be awesome. Here's the opportunity for us as parents to finally come together with community, with our, with our neighbors and say, oh my God, you guys, nobody talked to me about sex except that mm -hmm. guys should wear condoms and I'm terrified and I, but my kids are 15 and what do I do now? And, and so what do I do with these, every, people are afraid um, and the right wing is stoking that fear because they want, uh, and not, you know, not they want to uh, win elections. Politicians want power. Uh, we and there are definitely conservative people who don't agree with what what the leadership and the right wing is doing right now. Let's be sure that we say that you point that out. Yes. But I think that there are uh, many layers of, of of many many layers of interactions in communities where people who do have some power, like school boards, like administrations, like libraries public libraries um, can be uh, making a difference. Let's just point to the example quickly and I'll shut up of the, the coordination between the New York Public Library and the Brooklyn Public mm -hmm. Library yeah, that two yeah. weeks ago announced that they would make uh, to all teenagers in the entire country, yes. digital yes. books available uh, and audio books as well. That's forward thinking. That's yeah. change. That's right. access. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have, I mean, since that announcement, people have been sort of diving in a little bit and, and criticizing it a little bit too, because, you know, not every kid has access to a device Absolutely. or has access to Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's a step. It's yep. a step in the right direction of people thinking literally about what can I do yes. to mm -hmm. make things available um, yes. rather than a little free library or a bookmobile. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, I just thought that was very forward thinking. And yes, it, it's got flaws, but it is possibly a step in the right direction. So yep. I, I totally applaud it. Hey, I know that Ashley has a time limit. So I want to um, skip ahead to a question. 
that I don't want Ashley to miss out, miss out on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, don't, don't worry about me too, too much. I'll, I, I'm in here. I'm in here for a bit. But, okay. But wait, so before I, before you do that, can I just, can I say one thing about what Lori was saying with, yeah, the, yeah. You know, with, you know, making things available to like supporting our teachers, but also a good, you know, I've done some partnering with, with school librarians and language arts teachers around like messaging. And one of the things that I think that uh, can be so powerful by school leaders is to, to, I mean, do a little bit of a broken record thing with the parents bringing these complaints or showing up hysterical, because if you don't rise to their volume, they just continue to look hysterical <laughs> and unhinged. But to say, you know, gosh, I'm so grateful that you're engaged in your young person's education. Or gosh, I'm so grateful you care about education mm -hmm. in this community. Here are some of the ways that we support parents and community members in understanding how to talk about these issues with young people yeah. or in understanding what readers are encountering and mm -hmm. how they're making sense of it or what, we, or what place these books have or not in our curriculum. Um, we offer this workshop. We offer this, you know, um, discussion group. And when school leaders can respond to those things by saying what they they have action steps other than we're going to rip that off of the shelves. I think it goes a long way to taking the air out of the, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they can keep saying, I want it gone. But mm -hmm. the when the school leader is calmly saying, I hear your concern. <laughs> I'd love to include you in what we're doing for learners. I mean, I, this comes yeah. from some of my own experience in high conflict situations. <laughs> it really works. <laughs> well, you know, this is funny because it's not funny. It's just, it's, it's, you're repeating something that Renee Ellis, who is a student, who's a member of the um, Panther anti race union um student union in new york central pennsylvania mm -hmm. said to me during a, a previous podcast she said you know you have to show some empathy mm -hmm. right like and just that little bit of empathy with somebody you completely disagree with or who's being you know super hyperbolic just kind of takes that that air out of it a little bit right and yeah, i think that's i think that's absolutely essential um you can't kind of poo poo because that just gets everybody revved up, right? So I, you know, I do, I think there's this moment and then not only to say, I, I hear what you're saying, but I have programs or I have um, tools for you to use um, as you, you know, kind of consider what, what you're asking us to do, right? And, and that is perfect, again, because you're leading me into challenge policies and processes um, because I do think that is a tool our administrators have and they haven't been using or they've been ignoring. So I want to give you a quote from a recent PEN America report um, banned in the USA, rising school book bans threaten free expression and students' First Amendment rights. Um, they noted, uh, of the 1,586 bans listed in the index, and I don't even think that index is complete. That's just mm -hmm. been what's reported to PEN America. PEN America found that the vast majority, 98%, have involved various departures from best practice guidelines outlined by the National Coalition Against Censorship and the American Library Association. The report goes on to say that 96% of the bans in the index were initiated by school administrators or board members, mm -hmm. and rarely with the requisite written forms. And we know that these forms are important because they require the complainant to demonstrate familiarity with the books as a whole and to specify their objections in terms that can be reviewed. So in other words, the National Coalition Against Censorship um, says such written forms help reviewers assess the complainant's judgment and motives. So uh, what I, what I want to ask you about, and, and 
I don't really, anybody can start this one for me. Um, the library challenge policies have always been bulwarks against frivolous or conjecture-based reconsideration requests. But now these safeguards are kind of being eroded and we can't fully assess the complaints, the complainants motives. So what are your thoughts on challenge policies and processes? Can we rely on them in this climate? Is there a better alternative or approach? And uh, Santos, you want to start? <laughs> yeah, sure. um, so just in my case, it only took a single complaint from someone to get my book off shelves for months. You know, it had been on there for years and no one had said anything. It took one person to take it off there for months. And, you know, like a three or four months is nothing to us, you know, but to a teenager who's only known 14, 15 years of life, three or four months, you know, that's, those are defining moments of their lives where they don't have access to, you know, things like my book or, you know, any, 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 you know, media like that. Um, so I actually think that, um, because of the erosion of these policies, I do think that you see a lot more frivolous, like, you know, kind of waste, like, you know, people just being offended for offense's sake and, you know, throwing the, you, you, the bring, convening these boards and stuff to assess books that, you know, the, the, the review board that reviewed my book, they kind of laughed it off and they complimented the book and they said, this is an important book, you know, for kids to read and stuff like that. So, um, I kind of wish they were there was a the, like a critical mass or something of complaints that they could reach before uh -huh. they would like ban the book and or, or take the book off shelves because they take the book off shelves before they review it and I kind of wish they would leave the book on the shelves uh, and then review it and decide if they want to take it off the shelves because I really hate that they take the book off the shelves for as long as they do. So and that's you're usually so in violation of their own their own guidelines. I mean, right. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, in the case of our, the district where our books were banned, Santos, they said that they weren't being removed from shelves. They were just using the book copies and all that all of the copies <laughs> that were supposed to be available to teenagers exactly. for the committee members to read them. It's like, you know what? Exactly. Buy some other copies. <laughs> which which actually is a funny thing that I feel like there were certain like there was a there was like a community where my book was challenged, like and like then challenged again and they were like had to like do the thing again for whatever reasons and I think that the, the, the committee had like 40 people I'm like well that's not bad for sale <laughs> <laughs> but you're right I mean they're not supposed in most cases it's against the um the district policies to remove these books and certainly against the best practices as outlined by the NCAC and the ALA to make them unavailable while they're being challenged because that's that's elevating the um the com the, the complaining mm -hmm. individuals interests above the interests of all of the students mm -hmm. and all of their parents so you know i think that one pushback around the whole parents rights thing is like well wait okay but what about the rights of the other parents mm -hmm. who want mm -hmm. their kids to have access mm -hmm. to this yes. if you allow one complaint to remove access, mm -hmm. you basically disregarded the rights of all of those, you know, all of those parents. But, you know, it's all performance. I'll come back yeah. to that performance. Yeah, yep, yep. So, Lori, you've been through this goat rodeo many times. Yeah. Ha have you seen a weakening of this process? And, and, you know, for me, and I'll just say this, I think this is the goal to weaken this process. 
to well, make the, it to yeah. so that anybody can get up and, and, you know, narc on a teacher or just issue, you know, stand up at a board meeting and read this one salacious section and say, okay, that's it. We're going to remove mm -hmm. it. We don't mm -hmm. have to go through that process anymore. I think the goal is larger than that. The goal is the destruction of public education. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all I have to do. Yeah. Um, what, there are some things that I think we haven't done before and I, I think they can help now. And there are some, some shareholders, some power holders that we have not been able to, uh, to, to talk to yet, to communicate with. We, and I want us to be attending regularly the conferences where both regional and, and national, where school board members and where school superintendents gather. Mm. Because we need, uh, they need to be at our table and we need to be at theirs. Uh, the, and, you, and I'm talking about representatives, you know, authors and librarians, also lawyers who specialize in First Amendment cases. Mm -hmm. um, that there is, there are, if you tell me that 96% of those cases, uh, according to the PEN America report, was actually started by administrators improperly. Right. And when you say against their own guidelines, yes. uh, removing, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe we have to come up with, with uh, and that's on a state-by-state -state basis, but more than guidelines. Maybe mm -hmm. there has to be, yeah, do, you want it? do we need a law about that? Yeah, apparently we do. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like we need, a, I think we need the equivalent of a Mark Elias working yes, for yes, us, exactly, right? You know, exactly. and, I, and I've said this for a while, like, you know, and I know the ACLU is just bombarded right now. And yeah. I'm sure that their, their folks are just maxed out. But at the same time, I feel like we need that kind of legal eagle, yes. you know, willing to work for, it's not just to get the books on the shelves, it's to preserve intellectual freedom. Precisely. So it's just, mm. as a, it's just as important as voter suppression laws and gerrymandering. I yep. just, like you said, this is all a part of making sure our democracy continues. Yes. So, you know, I wish there were someone like that. And maybe that's where it starts by making sure this representation happens at regional and national conferences. So those administrators and those folks know that there is somebody who's going to cover them, you know, who they've mm -hmm. got the legal cover that they need so that they don't just react and say, well, I'm going to pull those books until I've had a look at them. And, and you know, I, I read the other day that the ACLU is about to um, file some challenges in Florida. And when we were talking earlier about, you know, it seems like publishing has a lot of money, but in truth, they, they don't, and they don't for this kind of thing. But there mm -hmm. are private citizens who could certainly, yes. um, and, you know, uh, you know, people who have large national book clubs, for example, uh, you know, who <laughs> might have some extra coin at the end of the month after the bills are paid. Um, you know, may, I would love a hundred million dollar donation uh, to the ACLU to help them fund challenges uh, that will yeah. fight for the First Amendment in every school district in America. Well, maybe um, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, uh, Mackenzie. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you get on that. I know she, maybe, we need to, maybe we need to start like some sort of campaign. I know she's given a lot of money to um, Planned Parenthood um, organizations, and this just seems that it would be right in her area of um, concern. So. Okay. Um, I want to start wrapping up because I want to be respectful of your time. And like I said, I know Ashley has um, a little bit of a time limit here, although I'm going to try to keep her on as long as we can. Um, so this is a unique panel. We have Lori, who is, again, for the lack of a better word, a seasoned band author. We've got Ashley. And in this recent wave of bands, Out of Darkness has been banned in 16 school districts and counting. 
good on you, I guess. Um, <laughs> Bad on them. <laughs> yeah. Santos was recently banned in Henrico County, Virginia. And like I said, there might be other bands in place that I'm not aware of yet. I, I certainly hope not. Um, so I wonder if any of you have any words of encouragement or advice for one another. Hmm. Well, I just want to say a big thing. I mean, Lori and I had a phone call, mut, you know, gosh, when was that? In the Months fall. Ago. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was right when we were just learning the name Moms for Liberty and the name, you know, some of these, the, the, the sort of, um, groups that are the face of this these challenges um but i mean i was it was an incredibly uh helpful experience to just to be to to talk about what we were seeing happening and to to share notes and to say oh, you know what this is not this is a different this is a different kind of book banning something different is going on here and to be watching that um in company and I feel like that, you know, I think that that has been one of the gifts of this really um, pretty devastating experience, yeah. <laughs> you know, and just like costly, like on a day-to-day thing and no, and no way, you know, suggesting that the costs we pay as authors in any way compared to the costs that students are paying or that teachers and librarians are paying, because I think that, that, you know, what this is, this is an assault on them. And it's daily. And I, it's, it just, it, you know, as a former high school teacher who became a way author because of the conversations I had with kids in libraries about the books that weren't there, like mm-hmm. it feel, I just feel that so deeply. And also I'm grateful for the way this terrible experience has created, you know, uh, con- connection, additional connections mm-hmm. um, between authors and sort of this sense of, um, solidarity and and like and like shared advocacy Mm -hmm. which doesn't undo the harms but there is something very different I I know I experienced from like this happening like happening and sort of no one's talking about it to you know I post the disgusting hate mail I get and I hear from other people whose perspective I respect that like this is an unacceptable, this is not dialogue, <laughs> you know, this is hate mail. And I think that, that that kind of, you know, just feeling that people have your back and are noticing what's happening to the work that you poured your heart into is, is just really, um, it's really powerful. So I'm really mm-hmm. grateful to be in community with you two and others. Yay. I feel the same <laughs> way about you, Ashley. You've been on the, out on the front lines in this one, and it's much, much appreciated. You're doing important work. Hmm. Agreed. Absolutely. I've enjoyed all your videos. <laughs> <laughs> your videos are hilarious. Oh, my yeah. God. Your videos are great. Everyone's <laughs> <lost> those. <laughs> Um, so, uh, quickly, um, what's next for each of you? Uh, do you have any upcoming appearances or author visits or speaking engagements or impending new releases you'd like to talk about? Santos, I think you have a sequel coming up. No, my sequel's already out. I've okay. Been, I've been laying low from the entire thing. I've been working on another novel that I just submitted to my editor and stuff oh, like that. So I'm just trying to stay out of the public eye because <laughs> there's a lot of pressure from all this stuff. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. How about mm-hmm. you, Ashley? Um, well, something we haven't talked about is what all of this stuff does to school visits. I haven't done a single school visit since my book was banned for the first time in August, which is, ne- I mean, you know, I, I mean, I have, I have the, the, I have had a lot of personal upheaval that has slowed down my, you know, the, the, the next, 
the next book is just very slow. And that's, that's a reality of caring for my kids through the pandemic and reconfiguring things in my personal life. And then all of this, Mm -hmm. but um, I've never, you know, even though my books came out a while ago, I've always had school visits. Mm -hmm. And so it's been kind of heartbreaking to see that go away. And um, so I don't have anything on the horizon. As far as that goes, I am talking to, you know, library groups Mm -hmm. and um, uh, youth advocacy groups. I appreciate being in those spaces as a speaker. Um, But I, I talk to banned book clubs, like, you know, small groups of students, but I haven't been interacting with kids in a school setting since all of this started. And I really miss that. Yeah. Um, I, re- I remember you were on a, that webinar that I watched recently and that's with Andrew Carr and everybody was there. Uh, 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 Alex Gino was on it and they were all talking about, you know, disheartened by the fact that a lot of their school visits had been canceled. I think one author was talking mm-hmm. about actually being escorted out of the building and like not yeah. Yeah, like he was in the middle of the visit, got kind of pinged a couple of times about, Hey, don't, go that way. And then eventually was, I think, interrupted and let out of the building during the yeah. visit, which was sad. I mean, and that's like, you know, a call out to your audience to say, you know, I, I think um, before we started our official conversation, Lori was talking a little bit about like, Hey, we authors understand teachers and librarians do not need another target on their backs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's how I understand what's happening. I don't think it's, you know, I mean, and I've heard anecdotally um, that very thing. And at the same time, there are communities like, you know, like where my kids attend school that are taking the exact opposite course from all of this. They're like, let's put more of these books in our libraries. And for librarians or teachers in those spaces to really think about how they can use this, they can they can use the support that they have in their communities to, to ensure that authors whose work is being challenged aren't being erased from the landscape. I think that that's, you know, that's one thing I've thought about is like, hey, I don't want anybody to stick their neck out in a place where it's going to, you know, cause them harm. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a space where you do have support um, for bringing authors whose books speak to diverse experiences, well, please do it because we're sure not getting invited other places. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Okay. I want to close with a quote from Santos that um, you gave to the spokesman um, in November of 2020 about your book, I Am a Gay Wizard. You -hmm. said, the book is about teenagers standing up to a corrupted and evil wizard government. So I hope my readers take away that if they are under an evil and oppressive government, they need to stand up to it. And I agree with you. I believe so much that what comes next in this fight Um, to ensure access to diverse, inclusive, and responsive library collections and comprehensive and factual instructional materials Mm -hmm. will be led by students. Mm -hmm. And this gives me great hope in a time of not a lot of hope. (laughs) So I want to thank you all again so much for participating. This has been a wonderful, informative, and candid conversation, which is what I was so hoping for. Thank you all. It was a a delight to speak with you all and get your author's perspectives and opinions on the situation. So thank you again. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. It was a delight. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.